this lecture is the 300th in the Rare Book School Book Arts Press series. It was given on Monday, the 16th of July, by Felix Oyens, the president of L.C. Harper, and is entitled 200 Years of Transatlantic Trade in Incunables. Welcome to the second week of Rare Book School 1990. Many of you are friends of Marianne Malkin, who was in the hospital last week, is now home, and I'm sure would be glad to hear from any of you who uh, would like to send her a card. She lives at 27 West 72nd Street, New York 10023. All of my staff members have the address. This is, in fact, the 300th lecture, so far as I can recollect from a not very accurate count, especially in the old days, of Bookhart's Press lectures. Tomorrow night, Paul Christeller, an old friend of this program and this podium, comes to celebrate the 300th lecture, but the 300th lecture is, in fact, tonight. <laughs> and uh, there is an informal exhibition, also in honor of this event, uh, littering the hallway outside, which I hope you'll take a look at. That will be up all of this week for those who are in residence this week and want to work their way through it more particularly. Felix Oyens is also no stranger to this podium and no stranger to our classrooms either. We have had him teaching in rare book school whenever we've been able to snare him, and it's a great pleasure to welcome him back on this occasion. Felix Oyens. Thank you. In a recent festschrift for the Amsterdam antiquarian bookseller Nico Israel, an article appeared by the Dutch book trade historian Bert von Zelm, entitled The Auction Catalogue of Franz Curtin's Books, 1668. Among his numerous interesting observations on this sale, is a central one that catches the attention of the incunabulist. The catalogue lists at least 34 Dutch incunables, or to be more precise, incunable editions containing de texts in Dutch. Entries such as in Oud-Stichtelijk Boek, i.e. an old edifying book, hardly allow one to be more exact as to their number. Curtin was a renowned illuminator in mid-17th century Amsterdam, and many, but by no means all, of his 15th century printed books lent themselves to colouring. The contents of the Curtin sale should probably be considered a dealer's stock rather than a private collection. But whatever the case may be, the number of Dutch incunables, perhaps about 5% of the total vernacular production, is much too large to be accidental. Curtin, then, had a strong interest in early printed and illustrated books, and his name can be added to the very select roster of incunable owners before the end of the 17th century who bought them for antiquarian or bibliophile reasons, not just for their texts. His rather more distinguished predecessors include the head of a 16th century book trade empire, Christopher Plantin of Antwerp, whose limited but superb collection of incunables, including a 36-line Bible, was conscientiously catalogued and preserved by his grandson, Balthasar Moritis. Another was the Austrian baron Ferdinand von Hoffmann, who had decided to keep 
the Münzer Holzschuhe incunables in their Gothic bindings. The 17th century collector whom we have most to thank for his taste far in advance of the period was August IV, Duke of Brunswick Wolfenbüttel, whose tolerance for original condition, in Anthony Hobson's words, caused him to accept damaged or imperfect copies of many woodcut books that might otherwise have been lost. Jean Viardot has dated the veering away from the tenets of Gabriel Naudet's Advie pour dresser une bibliothèque to around 1700. This bibliophile change of direction roughly coincided with the sudden growth of book sales in France, the emergence of Gabriel Martin, and his introduction of commercial and bibliographical sophistication into auction cataloguing. Similar developments took place in England and Holland. Simo de Ricci, predictably one of the first to write on the history of incunable collecting, in the Revue Archéologique 1915, was undoubtedly correct in noting that it was especially the Netherlands that the agents for Harley and Sunderland visited, attending the Hague and Amsterdam auction sales and ready to make private purchases as well. For instance, most of the, early, most of the important early books, including many in fine bindings for Groy and others, in the Peto and Monsard sale organized by Abraham de Hunt in 1722, were carried off by English collectors. The new breed of collector no longer needed to rely on the Hensius catalogue or von Beugem's bibliography, but the suppliers of Pembroke, George III, Uffenbach, Lavallière and Luminide de Brienne could now refer to Michel Metter's chronological lists of incunables and post-incunables, and later Denis Supplement. The main trade source of incunables for the most important Dutch collectors, such as Meermann, Kokingha, Fisser and van Westrenen was the antiquarian bookseller Peter van Domme. The late Hermann de la Fontaine of Ave has written about this fascinating and influential but strangely discreet figure on three different occasions. His greatest client was an Italian immigrant, the snuff merchant Pietro Antonio Crivena. Together, they sold as a ballon d'essai over 170 incunabula in a 1789 auction at Peden Hengst Rooms in Amsterdam, which 25 years ago was a copy of that I bought as my first rare book acquisition. I think one of the very few surviving copies. And it wasn't until very recently that I realized that this was a Crivena catalog. So if you hold on to your books long enough, you'll you're going to discover something about them. Only to be followed by the sale of most of Crivena's huge but highly bibliophile collection in 1790, including approximately 1,050 incunables. The international marketing was done through 38 European booksellers, but none in the New World, rather like the catalogue distribution of the Rover sale 16 years later, as shown on the slide. Note the representation in Moscow and St. Petersburg. 
Despite mostly spectacular prices, 20% of the lots were bought in, and afterwards a Rückgangsliste of the BIs, perhaps the earliest known example of one, was published. Among the strongly represented early Netherlandish printing was an exceedingly rare Dutch Horai, printed by van der Meer Delft in 1480 and with characteristic northern penwork decoration. The edition could not be found in the United States until 1981, when this Crivenna copy came to the Pierre Morgan Library as part of an exchange of duplicates with the Royal Library, The Hague. Now this binding I, I once showed here in, a, in another lecture about Dutch auction sales, but I'm showing it again because I know, I think I now know the binder. The simple but elegant binding on the Delft Horai is of a type commonly employed by Crivenna and perhaps ordered through Van Damme, the Dutch dealer I just mentioned, who is known to have patronized at least one Amsterdam atelier on a regular basis. Its Morocco roan leather is thin, but has remained in remarkably fresh condition. Could have the lights on, please? Van Damme's antiquarian operations were quite unique in Holland, and his work on the Crivenna and other sales was almost entirely behind the scenes. You will not find mention of his name anywhere in any of these catalogues. The La Fontaine of Auvey has found in Van Damme's correspondence letters from Thomas Jefferson, but Peter van Wingen pointed out in a lecture three years ago that the Jefferson Library acquired by Congress in 1815 contained no incunables at all. So what was the state of American collecting at this period of haute bibliophilie, of English and continental mania for collecting incunabula? At the outset, I should make it clear that although no doubt incunables must have reached Latin America from Spain long before any reached the English colonies, my deep ignorance in this area demands that they be left out of this talk. Suffice it to say that Clive Griffin, in his exhaustive study on the Krumbergers of Seville, has reported that in 1534, Emperor Charles V gave Bishop Zumaraga permission to spend one-fifth of Mexico Cathedral's income over a period of three years on the creation of a library. The bishop contracted a bookseller called Martinez to help him set up the library, and their first transac transaction concerned a large number of books from Kronberger, who was later granted a monopoly of book exports to Mexico. It is therefore more than likely that the first incunables crossed the Atlantic in the 1530s and under Spanish flag. French revolutionary upheavals will be mentioned later as a major source of incunable um, migration from the continent to England and the United States. But they had a direct effect on South America as well. When Napoleon's army entered Lisbon in November 1807, the Prince Regent, later King Don John VI, and Queen Donna Maria I, with a large retinue, sailed for Brazil to establish a seat of government in Rio de Janeiro. With them, they took the Royal Library of some 60,000 volumes, including at least 74 incunables. They formed the nucleus of Brazil's National Library, founded in 1810. Among them was a truly royal book, the 1496 Lucena, 
the first theoretical work on chess, as well as the Seville edition of the same year of Thomas Akempis' Imitation of Christ in Spanish. The only other copy known of the latter is also in America at the Houghton Library. The most important early printed book shipped by the Royal Librarian to Bahia was the first 1462 Fustenschaffer Bible to reach the Western Hemisphere. However, no single copy can claim this honor as Don John owned two copies, both on vellum. Paper copies are actually slightly rarer. His first, an illuminated copy, had been purchased in 1769 by King Joseph of Portugal at the Genyar sale and had been one of the treasures in the De Beaux and the Decotte collections. The second copy may bear witness to Fust's fateful selling trip to France in 1466. An inscription records its sale in April 1470 by a Parisian university stationer, Jean Guignet, to Guillaume Tourneville, canon of Saint-Maurice Cathedral at Angers. Don John happily acquired this duplicate from, his dupli this duplicate from Cardinal d'Acunha, and the true bibliophile decision was made to take both into exile. In 1822, the year of Brazil's independence, the keeper of printed books at the thrice-renamed French Bibliothèque du Roi, the formidable Joseph von Prat, who made it his business to know about the movement of books in his time, since he was behind much of it, still thought both 1462 Bibles were located in Lisbon. The first 1462 Bible to end up in the United States was a copy of the New Testament only, purchased by George Livermore before 1851, and now in the Chapin Library, Williams College, Massachusetts. 15th century printed books first landed on North American shores in the 17th century. When Fred Goff, in the introduction to his 1972 supplement to the third census of Incunabia and American libraries, advanced the date of the first incunable to reach America from 1698 to a probable 1635, he became the victim of his own system of arrangement. John Alden, then of the Boston Public Library, had reported to him that two 1491 Venetian incunable editions by different printers and bound together of St. Augustine's Opuscula, which came to this great institution in the Prince Collection, had belonged to a pilgrim father, the Reverend John Norton. Goff's listing of these editions would lead one to conclude that for some eccentric reason, half of Norton's Zammelband was a redundancy. But a quick check of their contents reveals that none of the texts is duplicated. He recorded one other incunable in the 17th century colony, a 1485 Basel Cassian, presented by William III to King's Chapel, Boston, and now in the Boston Athenaeum. Although the two most famous book collectors of colonial America, James Logan of Philadelphia and Thomas Prince of Boston, each formed libraries running to thousands of volumes, including a few in Cunabula, they cannot be said to have had an interest in early printing. Busily buying books on the London market in the early and mid-18th century, there was certainly no competition for the Earl of Leicester, the Roxburghs, or Consul Smith, even if Logan did own a set of Mettaire. 
they were mostly interested in useful books and in this respect belonged to the scholarly collecting tradition of 17th century Europe. Morgan gave his library to the citizens of Philadelphia and towards the end of the century it was annexed to the library company. It is as an institution in 1828 that the Luganian Library acquired its finest early printed books, including the Swineheim and Ponard's Vulgate, Caxton's Golden Legend, Vera Horai, Liege Horai printed by Liesfeld in Antwerp, and the only copy extant outside Leningrad. Benalius and Kapkaza's illustrated Divina Commedia, and Jensen's 1476 Italian Pliny on Vellum, identified by Paul Needham as a long-lost dedication copy from the translator Cristoforo Landino to the Aragonese king of Naples, Ferrante. They were bequeathed by William Mackenzie of Philadelphia, about whom very little appears to be known, but who has rightly been characterized as the first American connoisseur of Incunabula. Perhaps Mackenzie had bought his magnificent Pliny in London from Messrs. Longman, who advertised a similarly illuminated copy on vellum in an 1818 catalogue at £35. With the 19th century, we have arrived in an age that is possibly only now coming to an end. Some of the reference books on incunables that we use every day were compiled in the 19th century, just as Brunet continues to be indispensable to any student of old books, and the Americanists can still not quite do without Sabin. But not only do we build on the practical lists and bibliographies, such as Hein, Campbell and Proctor, our method of bibliographical analysis also goes back that far, as practiced by Bradshaw and Schwenke. The names of some important 19th century incunable dealers are the same as those that appear most prominently on the covers of current catalogues or in price lists of recent sales. Quaritch, Mags, Rosenthal, etc. Not to speak of our two largest auction houses, whose histories are even older. More significantly, not only their names have not changed much, nor have their methods of acquiring describing and marketing incunables. Reading through the incunable entries of the earliest catalogues published by Breslau and Meyer of Berlin in the 1890s, for example, one is struck by how similar their notes are to what commercial catalogues write today concerning rarity, condition, desirability, etc. Indeed, in supplying transcriptions of incipits and colophons and collations for post-incunabula, they are unquestionably superior. The major source of incunabula on the market in the 19th century, namely the secularization of monasteries, also has a delayed effect into our own time and thus has still not quite run dry. For instance, much of the early German printing in the Doheny sale, itself the result of the library dissolution of a modern religious institution, and some of the Italian incunables in the Rylands duplicate sale came from monastic houses suppressed in the 18th or 19th century. The same pattern could be observed in the undesignated Reutner von Weiss sale at Bloomsbury Book Auctions, and recently 
in the Abram sale as well, which included several incunables from the Hans Deckel collection, anonymously dispersed four years ago by Wölfler of Munich. Expulsion of the Jesuits, secularization affecting all religious orders under the old and the new regimes of continental Europe, the revolutionary wars and Napoleonic conquests changed the ownership of literally millions of books and tens of thousands of incunables. Most of those did not at all or not immediately reach the open market. Many were centralized in existing national, regional, or university libraries, and as a result, some were only sold decades later as duplicates, or quadruplicates, in the case of the Royal Library at Munich. This example of one of them came to Munich from Amberg Franciscans, then in this century spent at least 60 years in the United States, and was re-offered at Sotheby's last year. The three remaining copies of the 1473 Schoffer de Civitate Dei, in what is now the Bavarian State Library in Munich, were liberated from Aldersbach Cistercians, Augsburg Benedictines, and the Electoral Collection at Mannheim. Directly or indirectly, the greatest immediate beneficiaries of these avalanches hitting the incunable market were, of course, English collectors. Crash Road, Grenville, Spencer, Phillips, etc. All noblemen who had found a temporary haven by crossing the channel, such as the Duc d'Aumal. To a much more modest extent did early American incunable collectors profit. Mackenzie, an Americana collector and Stevens client, Colonel Peter Force of Washington, whose 161 titles illustrating the spread of printing were purchased by the Library of Congress in 1867. William Menzies, whose books were catalogued by Joseph Sabin. Andrew O'Dell and George T. Strong, both of New York, whose collections were sold at auction by Bangs in 1878. Henry Probasco of Cincinnati, whose books were acquired by the Newbury Library in 1890. Adolf Sutro of San Francisco, whose Munich duplicates burned in the earthquake. And Theodore Lowe de Vinny, whose nearly 100 incunabula were sold at the Anderson Galleries. The two largest groups of incunables to come en bloc to America in the 19th century would also not have been formed without secularization. In 1838, the second collection of 400 incunables, the first and larger one had gone to Phillips and would reach San Marino, California, almost in its entirety, close to a century later, made by the ex-monk Leander van Es, more dealer than collector, who was, which was purchased as part of a large library by Union Theological Seminary of New York. An ironic destination, perhaps. This shows the most beautiful incunable in the first collection formed by von S, the Erfurt Carthusians copy of the Schaffer Saint Jerome, now after a 65-year stay on the West Coast, on deposit at the British Library. And in 1898, the Free Library of Philadelphia 
acquired the Coppinger and Kinnewell collection of 500 editions at the instigation of Clarence S. Cates. Could I have the lights on again, please? The 19th century is also the golden age of Americana collecting, and albeit less feverishly, Bible collecting. Both fields inevitably taken in Cunabula of great importance and value, and two mid-19th century American collectors especially combined these interests. Thus, the expatriate bookseller Henry Stevens and the Dutch dealers Martinez Nehoff and Frederick Muller sold incunables relating to the discovery of the New World. And Wiley and Putnam, through their London office, the Rive Firmandido Hibbert copy of the Gutenberg Bible to James Lennox. And Quaritch, the unique Barcelona-Columbus letter in Spanish, after the collector's death, to the Lennox Library. Lennox's final purchase had been the 1459 Durandus, practically made from his deathbed. All are now in the New York public. Albert Cohn and Asher and Company of Berlin sold the Air Force Dominicans copy of the 42-line Bible to George Brindley through Stevens. Now, via three other American collectors in the Scheide Library. Obadiah Rich and Stevens, both American dealers who saw the obvious advantages of serving their compatriots from London, sold Columbus letters and numerous other Americana incunables to John Carter Brown, many from the Terno Compan collection. Brown and his brother Nicholas had started out collecting the classics and Aldines, including many from the Sussex sale, and after his death, the widow Sophia Augusta Brown continued to buy early books from F.S. Ellis in London, while their elder son, John Nicholas Brown, added even more editions of the Columbus Letter, as well as the Bologna and Ulm Ptolemies. Bernard Quaritch sold four Gutenberg Bibles to American clients. In the 1880s, the Old Testament part with unique settings to Theodore Irwin of Oswego, New York. In 1896, the beneficiary of Utrecht Cathedral copy to the first president of the Groyer Club, Robert Ho. In 1897, the Nostitz copy on vellum, also to Ho. And in, 1880, and in 1898, the Offenburg Church of the Holy Cross copy to the Bible collector, Reverend Eugene Augustus Hoffman. So far, the only 19th century American copy to have returned to Europe, now in Stuttgart. Two American customers of Quaritch's for incunables were immortalized through lavish catalogues. General Rush Hawkins's, privately published, John Boyd Thatcher's, posthumously by the government printing office for the Library of Congress. Thatcher, who put together the larger and finer collection of the two, also bought from Giuseppe Martini and the American firm Dort Mead and Company. Hawkins actually made most of his purchases on the continent visiting dealers and attending auctions in all West European countries except Spain. His favorites were Cohn of Berlin and the undisputed expert of Paris, Anatole Claudin, but he especially relished recounting his dealings with various marchands mateurs and was clearly rather proud to write about the length to which he would go in his search for early books. And I'm quoting, at the hour agreed upon, my newly made friend, conducted me to an unprepossessing-looking house fully a third of a mile from the outskirts of this lesser Italian city. The 
company consisted of two repulsive female specimens of the low-class furies type and two men, one of them he who had brought me. They all had vicious eyes and looked as though used to any kind of business and ready for it. A few worthless books had been arranged on a table for inspection and they demanded enormous prices. I gave him a careless look and then made an unpleasant remark about having been deceived. Thereupon came from the fool a fierce and angry howl of indignation. I fancied I was in for an encounter, calculated the weight of the odds against me, grasped my trusty cane the tighter and kept myself between the door and the howling gesticulators who appeared quite ready for a sudden attack. Fortunately, the door opened outwards, but not being latched or fastened, it flew open as soon as my back touched it, and I almost fell backward down the steps into the road. The whole pack continued to yell after me from an open window until I was out of hearing. End of quote. Decidedly less adventurous than the old general were the type founder George Bruce and his son David Wolfe Bruce, who brought incunables on the continent around the same time, including a fair number on the Barnheim sale at Stargards in Berlin. Thatcher's and Hawkins's collection, collections remain, of course, intact, although the latter at times precariously so, at L.C. and the Anne-Marie Brown, respectively. But the Bruce incunables were partly dispersed in one of the greyer club's less bibliophile moments. Two titans among art collectors at the turn of the century, whose libraries have been institutionalized, are almost too well known to mention. Henry Walters of Baltimore, who in 1905, reputedly without ever, ever having heard of Incunabula before, made a block purchase of some 1,100 of them from Leo Olschke in Florence. And J. Piap and Morgan, another Olschke client, as well as De Marinis's, Quaritch's, and anyone else's who managed to produce manuscripts or printed books important enough for him. In 1897, Morgan bought a Gutenberg Bible on vellum from Sutherland's, in 1899, the Irwin Old Testament on paper, and in 1911, the complete Sykes Perkins paper copy at the Hughes sale, as well as the Siston Parr copy of the 1459 Psalter from Quaritch's in 1899. However, not unlike his younger and more passionate competitor, Henry Huntington, probably the greater book collector of the two, he preferred to buy entire collections, such as the choicer portion of the Tuvi Library, the Amherst of Hackney Caxtons, and the Bennett Collection, including many of William Morris's incunables. The 1906 privately published catalogue of Walters's incunabula, compiled by Orschke, was until recently still in print, A.W. Pollard's catalogue of Morgan's incunables, printed at Chiswick Press a year later, has been a rare and expensive book almost from the day it was published. In spite of all this activity, it can be shown that at the beginning of the 20th century, the United States did not compare in importance to the Western and Central European countries as a market for incunabula. For those masses of theology, liturgy, law, medicine, classics, and even vernacular literature that had been flooding the market for at least a century and were still to a considerable extent being held in dealer stocks. Although I think his figures are on the low side, 
Goff gave as a rough estimate 4,000 copies of, copies of incunable editions in American ownership in the year 1900, and only about 7,000 in 1906. Spurred on by the recent publication of Pelechet, Coppinger, Reichling, and particularly Proctor in the first volume of BMC, all within the span of 10 years, and by the formation of the Commission für den Gesamtkatalog der Wiegendrucke, booksellers, particularly those in the German-speaking countries, sensed a newly specialized international market, both public and private, and began to emphasize incunabula by grouping them separately in their catalogues, or even devoting entire catalogues to them. The Rosenthal's, Halle, Hirsemann, Beer, Breslau, Gilhofer and Ranschburg, Orschke, Voynich, Nehoff, and so on and so forth. The most energetic and one of the most successful of these was Jacques Rosenthal of Munich. Some years ago, for a lecture on a related topic, I analyzed his monumental two-part catalogue, Incunabula Typographica, issued in 1901 and 1906, which offered almost 3,000 incunables for sale, from imperfect pamphlets of 27 marks, a few dollars, to dazzling woodcut books for 16,000 marks, $4,000. From the many tedious statistics I gave, I shall just pick a couple to make the point of the relative modesty of the American market. Rosenthal sold just 3% to American clients, and none of the most valuable books. One interesting detail pointing to the future is that half a dozen of these orders were received from the mid and far west. Now compare this interest with the 282 incunables the British Museum ordered, 260 successfully, almost 10% of the entire catalogue, three times all American orders put together and including the second most expensive book offered, a French Antichrist of 352 pounds. The museum placed these orders on 11 different occasions, first hurriedly, sometimes taking their time, once drawing on the so-called Central Reserve Fund in order not to have to commit fully a quarter of its annual budget for the entire department of printed books. Since I wrote my report of this remarkable deal, I have been allowed to work my way through the museum's minutes and reports for this period, through the courtesy of Mr. Philip Harris, and I cannot resist briefly quoting from them to demonstrate the rationale of incunable acquisition defined by A.W. Pollard, who was advising the keeper, G.K. Fortescue, in the matter. The reports and minutes were read for approval by the museum's director, Sir Edward Maughan Thompson. In the Keeper's Report of September 1900, Fortescue recommends the purchase of 18 books from part one of Jacques Rosenthal's catalogue, including 11 by printers unrepresented in the library, and having, in quotes, taken care to select incunabula in types unrepresented in the collection. He specifically mentions a 1491 Treviso Miracoli della Madonna as an undescribed book nine years later in date and the latest of three books already known to have been printed by Paolo da Ferrara. In report number 93 of 4th December 1905, relating to part two of Incunabula Typographica, in quotes, Mr. Fortescue is very desirous of acquiring as many as possible of these books, so that this section of the catalogue, i.e. BMC1, which wasn't out yet, may be as complete as possible. The cost of these German incunabula offered by Rosenthal as not in the British Museum, namely 100, exceeds 1,000 pounds, 
that Mr. Fortescue would be very grateful if the trustees will make a special grant of £1,000 so as to enable as many as possible of these specimens of early German printing to be bought. Mr. Fortescue is aware that the sum asked for is a large one, but Herr Jacques Rosenthal has spent several years in bringing together these books. German incunabula not already in the British Museum occur but seldom in ordinary dealers' catalogues, and such an opportunity of enriching the German section of the museum catalogue of incunabula cannot occur again. In the end, 87 out of these 100 were submitted and approved. After the German incunables had been collated, Pollard, perhaps assisted by Victor Scholderer, who had just recently joined the department, turned his attention to other countries, and Fortescue noted in his report of February 1906, the books which Mr. Rosenthal offers in this catalogue form the largest and finest collection of incunabula which has been, seen, which has been in the book market for many years. The books are, as a rule, in fine condition, and the prices asked are very reasonable. It is highly improbable that such an opportunity of adding to the museum collection of incunabula will again occur. Under the circumstances, Mr. Fortescue has ventured, with the approval of the director, to select from Mr. Rosenthal's catalogue 130 15th-century books from French, Italian and Spanish presses, many of them by printers unrepresented in the library. The books selected have been sent on approval by Mr. Rosenthal, who offers to deduct 10% from the marked prices in one invoice of 22 books and 15% from a second invoice of 108 books, making a net total of £1,259, one shilling and a penny. In January 1905, Mr. Fortescue, I'm still quoting, submitted to the trustees a statement of the number of incunabula in the public libraries of Europe. At that date, the largest collections were those in the Hofbibliothek Munich, which contained 9,000 books and 4,000 duplicate copies. The British Museum, 8,800 books and 1,300 duplicates. And the Bibliothèque Nationale Paris, 8,000 books and 4,000 duplicates. During the course of 1905, 42 incunabula were purchased for the British Museum, and if the trustees approve of the purchase from Mr. Rosenthal of the books now submitted, amounting in all to 217 books, the figures excluding duplicates will stand thus. The British Museum, 9,095 books. Munich, 9,000. Paris, 8,000. Thus, the British Museum will contain the largest and probably the finest and most representative collection of incunabula. Fortescue, and this is end of quote, Fortescue conveniently assumed here that the Hofbibliothek and the Bibliothèque Nationale were making no or few additions themselves, which was actually wrong in the case of the Bayen. He ends the report with a list of the most important titles. This purchase, too, was sanctioned by the trustees. It is hard to imagine any other library in Europe, except perhaps the Royal Library in Copenhagen, under the dynamic chief librarianship of H.O. Lange, who bought 86 incunables from Rosenthal's catalogue, going about filling their 15th-century shelves quite this systematically, let alone an American institution. The most expensive item in the Rosenthal incunable catalogue 
did cross the Atlantic a dozen years later. The first German dance of death at 800 pounds, promptly and predictably ordered by Fairfax Murray from London, and in time for inclusion in, in H.W. Davies's classic catalogue. In 1917, with much of the book world in the trenches, it resurfaced in the Murray sale at Christie's, when Belda Costa Green quietly bought it for J.P. Morgan at a no doubt for her highly satisfying price of £90. In the period between the turn of the century and the beginning of World War I, four events significantly changed the character and the pace of incunable collecting in the United States. A census, a sale, and two immigrations. The Bibliographical Society of America held its first meeting at St. Louis on 18th October 1904. The printed statement issued shortly thereafter announced that the Council of the Society decided the first publication of the Society should be a list of the incunabula in American libraries, a large part of the material for which has already been collected in Philadelphia under the direction of Mr. Thompson. At first, the work was planned as an elaborate catalogue, but the Lennox librarian and compiler of Sabin, Wilberforce Eames, realized that this was much too ambitious and suggested a short title census. The project had many editors and contributors over the years, with its files moving between three different libraries and progressed by fits and starts until the results finally appeared from April 1918 to August 1919 in nine installments of the New York Public Library Bulletin under the supervision of George Parker Winship. There can be little doubt that the information solicited for the census from institutional libraries and private collectors and the inquiries that could be made from the keepers of its files much influenced American incunable buying during this period. It also inspired European dealers to new themes for their catalogues, such as Leo Olszki's number 96, Incunabula not owned in America or after Margaret Stilwell's second census had come out in 1940, Mag's Brothers number 704, a catalogue of 50 incunabula not in America. The sale, which marked a new beginning for the American book trade in general, and for the incunable trade in particular, you will no doubt have guessed, was that of Robert Ho's library in 1911, and little needs to be said about it to this audience. It may always remain the greatest book auction held in the United States and has maintained its notoriety for sale room frenzy to this day. Its importance for our purposes is threefold. It was held in New York at the Anderson Auction Company and not consigned to one of the London rooms, like the Herman Charles Hoskier collection of 339 in Cunabula three years earlier. Two, dealers from England and the continent who had never attended an American sale before, came over for it, armed with hefty bids. Three, American collectors and their American agents won many of the biggest battles. Not only G.D. Smith for Huntington and Rosenberg for Weidemann and Stetson, but also Walter Hill of Chicago for the Newbury Library, James Drake, Scribner's, Dodd and Livingston for local collectors and Lathrop Harper, whose first tentative steps on the incunable path this represented, even if some of his bids were German, 
coming as they did from Jacques Rosenthal and Heinrich Eisenmann. Tremendous publicity was given to the wholesale in the local newspapers, and among the portraits shown in the New York Herald cartoon of January 1912, captioned the bloodless, battle for, the bloodless battles for books of the bibliophiles, was next to Smith, Dr. R., Alfred Quaritch and Harper, the caricature of Dr. Giuseppe Martini of Lucca. It was the emigration to New York of this learned Italian book dealer, and from London, of the almost equally learned Polish book dealer, Wilfred Voynich, that I refer to as having had a major impact on incunable collecting in America. Their influence, though on a smaller scale, was not dissimilar to that of the emigre Jewish book dealers of a quarter century later. Edward Lazar, the only man alive today to have known both in their New York period, once described Martini to John Carter Brown librarian Thomas Adams as a volatile man given to explosions and tells a story of him brandishing a knife in the sale room. He was born in 1870, issued his first catalogues from Lucca at the close of the 19th century, married an American who after World War II was to sell the Martini Nachlass to Krauss and Sharp, and settled in New York sometime before 1910. His first American catalogues were issued from an improbable address, 516 West 162nd Street. But soon, he began to conduct business from the Anderson Galleries on 40th Street, where he also freelanced as an auction cataloger. Half a dozen years later, he moved around the corner into Harper's offices. His detailed catalogues of medieval manuscripts, incunabula, illustrated books, historical in 1922, he permanently returned to Europe and traded from Lugano, Switzerland, close enough to his medieval hometown, but outside the sphere of Mussolini. In 1934, ten years before his death, he published with Hepley in Milan what I think is one of the cleverest catalogues ever written by a bookseller of 405 Italian incunabula. Before abandoning America, he had left a large number of incunables on consignment with Harper, and I dare say, without his example and friendship, the first American bookseller's catalogue, exclusively devoted to incunables, issued in the late 20s and containing a thousand editions, might not have been Harper's. While Martini was producing his first catalogues from Luca, Wilfred Michael Voynich, by five years his senior, set up in business in London, and soon opened branches in Florence, Paris, Warsaw, and for some obscure reason, in Birmingham. He had led an adventurous life as a revolutionary in Lithuania and Poland, fought Tsarist Russia, escaped from Warsaw prison and the Siberian salt mines, and all that to become a bookseller on Shaftesbury Avenue, and marry Ethel Bull, forgotten, I suppose, today, authors of the bestseller The Gadfly, 1897. Voynich issued a series of catalogues no less remarkable than Martini's. His bibliographical descriptions of early printed books were far better than any other London booksellers, bar none, not even Hugh Davies's work for Leighton's. In 1902, his eighth list consisted in quotation marks, solely of unknown and lost books, 
and was therefore offered for sale as a whole. That this was no idle boast can be seen from G.K. Fortescue's report to the British Museum trustees four years later, in October 1906. Mr. Fortescue reports a donation of considerable interest has been offered to the trustees since the last meeting. 158 unknown or lost books collected by Mr. Voynich. The collection has been purchased and presented to the trustees through Messrs. Wilde and Collins, Cheapside, EC, who state that the money acquired for their purchase was subscribed by Lord Strathcona, the Honourable Walter Rothschild MP, and other gentlemen who do not wish their names to be mentioned. Mr. Fortescue, after taking every means in his power to verify Mr. Voynich's assertions, has come to the conclusion that with one or two trifling exceptions, the books, atlases and broadsides are unknown to bibliographers and that other copies are not to be found in any of the principal libraries of Europe. Many of these books have little interest beyond the fact that they are unknown. <laughs> but many others are in themselves of interest and value. Among these are 14 incunabula, are 14 incunabula of which the most valuable is a sonata printed by Louis Cruz at Geneva about 1487, while some others are interesting specimens of the productions of early Milanese presses between 1471 and 1499. End of quote. Around this time, Giuseppe Orioli, later of Irving Davis and Orioli, but who at this point had not the slightest interest in old books, was introduced to Voynich, who gave him some free advice as quoted in Orioli's delightful memoirs. If you ever become a seller of books, stick to one subject at a time. <coughs> Buy the best and the rarest books and don't let them go till you have formed a big collection. That is what I'm doing. I'm making a library of books dealing with cholera, and when that library is complete, some American will come along and buy it for 300 times more than I gave for it. <laughs> That's what I call doing business. End of quote. Orioli goes on to describe his reaction. He had infected me with some germ, with his, books, with his book collecting mania. Whether Voynich's American cholera project ever came to anything, I do not know. But at the outbreak of World War I, he emigrated to New York and stayed on until his death in 1930, occupying small rooms near Times Square. One of his passions was incunabula, and the infectiousness of his enthusiasm, as attested by Orioli, worked quite as well in America. As far as I know, he published no catalogues under a New York imprint, and he was certainly not a prominent auction buyer. But through his European branches and contacts, he imported masses of early books, and the few remaining files preserved at the Groyer Club show him at the end of his life selling to Bell Green and other difficult clients with unflagging energy. Martini and Voynich were the only booksellers who were specially shown the proofs of the first census and asked for their suggestions and assistance. The story after World War I is at once more familiar and more confusing. More familiar because the records for this period are far completer, much has been published, although often anecdotally rather than factually, and much is still within living memory. More confusing because of the large number of smaller but not necessarily less interesting collections formed, 
and the sheer volume of incunables involved. The first census in 1919 recorded 13,200 American copies of 6,300 editions. Stillwell in 1940, 35,200 copies, an increase of 165% of 11,100 editions, a 77% increase. When the supplement to the third census appeared in 1972, there were 47,200 copies in America of 12,600 editions. Today, upwards of 45% of all incunable editions extant are represented in American libraries, more than in any other country except probably Great Britain and perhaps Germany. The range of their origin is definitely greater than in any other country except again Great Britain. Collectors and libraries on the continent have always tended and still tend to concentrate on their own national production. From these figures, it is clear that the greatest flight of incunables from the old to the new world took place between the two world wars. The pilots on the east coast were Rosenbach, Harper and Gabriel Wells. In London, Merckx, Quaritch and E.P. Goldschmidt. On the continent, that extraordinary coterie of Jewish dealers which in the 30s became Europe's loss and America's gain. Harper especially, who had no other language besides English, kept in close touch with the German-speaking set and financed many of their most spectacular private deals, such as the various purchases from Leningrad and the choicest portion of Castle Nicholsburg. The 20s was also the time of the successful machinations of the controversial Dr. Otto Vorbeer, whose huge transactions with Congress of 3,000 incunables, including the Lavantal Benedictine's copy on vellum of the 42-line Bible, is only the most notorious. He also did three enormous deals with Huntington and sold large numbers at New York auctions as well. Other block purchases at this time by Huntington included most of the Van S. Phillips incunables, the Thomas Stanford collection, and the Richter collection of Berlin from Rosenbach and Harper together. Rosenbach and Harper developed a routine whereby the first provided the clients and the second the books. Thus, numerous illustrated incunables in the Lessing-Rosenwald collection came from Harper, but not a single invoice. John Scheide bought from various dealers and picked his treasures very carefully one by one, including the Brindley Ellsworth copy of the 42-line Bible from Rosenbach and a unique Calixtus bull of about the same date from Mags. I shall say little else about the unique contribution of the emigre booksellers just before, during and after World War II than to urge you to read or reread Bernard Rosenthal's excellent survey entitled The Gentle Invasion, obtainable from the Columbia University School of Library Service. Paradoxically, his one omission, or the only one I can find, is a revealing one. Although all two dozen dealers on his list, with one exception, had Jewish backgrounds, not a single one had the least interest in Hebrew books. There are two classic trade catalogues of Hebrew incunabula, both of which appeared before the Nazis' accession to power. The first was produced from Munich by Mr. Rosenthal's great-uncle and elder brother of Jacques, Ludwig Rosenthal. The second was hardly less important and very likely done as a conscious imitation from Vienna, by David Frankel. Following the Anschluss, 
Frankel fled to New York where he was welcomed by Joshua Bloch, the great Alexander Marx, and other Jewish librarians and collectors. He had brought a fair number of Hebrew incunabula and post incunabula with him and issued a series of catalogues. He is still rather fondly remembered by an older generation of orthodox bibliophiles, and there is no question that his role in the specialized branch of transatlantic, transatlantic incunable trading was a considerable one. The post-war period, of course, belongs to the recently deceased Hans-Peter Krauss. The Phillips purchase by the Robinson brothers is indisputably the most important book trade transaction of our time. But as indisputably, has Krauss been the greatest antiquarian bookseller of our time? His commercial dominance has not been as absolute for incunables as for medieval and illuminated manuscripts, but it must be called dominance nevertheless. His collaboration with William Sharp, who died in 1975, was particularly effective. It must be gratifying to many of his clients to know that his family business has now purchased in an old European port a private incunable collection of huge proportions by today's standards, well over 700 editions from about 80 printing towns. For some years now, and I don't see that pattern changing, the United States, partly because its library managers have begun to view their books as financial assets, has probably been a net loser of incunables. Not to Japan, the Doheny Gutenberg Bible is the grand exception, or other new markets, but to Europe, although it slowly keeps gaining additions. So transatlantic trade in them continues, albeit on a very small scale and in both directions. Several recent auctions provide typical figures. Of the 54 incunables in the Ryland sale held in London about held in London, about 25% ended up in America, whereas of the 135 incunables in the Doheny sale held in New York, about 33% have returned to Europe. Three Doheny incunables, for which I have slides, illustrate a few of the channels I have mapped, all are now in continental private collections. The Ruiz copy of the 1462 Bible and Vellum Mrs. Doheny bought from Rosenbach. The Amherst of Hackney Subiaco Lactantius came to America via Quaritch. The dedication copy on vellum to Lorenzo de' Medici of a Florentine imprint edited by Poliziano had probably reached England by the 18th century and was sold to Mrs. Doheny by Mags in 1938. A far superior copy of the Subiaco Lactantius to Mrs. Doheny, to Mrs. Doheny's was sold less than a month ago at Christie's London, but it will not cross the Atlantic despite a bargain price of £220,000. Can I have the lights on, please? At about the same time, a 1469 Pliny and a contemporary binding consigned from Europe was sold at Christie's New York for $242,000 and immediately returned to Europe. 
the three most important and most expensive incunables in the H.B. Martin sale at Sotheby's, New York, including the Brittle court copy of the Urim Ptolemy on vellum at just under $2 million, were all shipped to Europe after the sale, even if one of them was ostensibly knocked down to an American dealer. On the other hand, for the first time ever, a Buddha incunable reached these shores via Poland and the Munich auction house Hartung & Hartung. Its stay may not be permanent, being in trade hands, and if it leaves again, a unique opportunity will have been lost. Only two other Buddha imprints of the 15th century are known, but forever unobtainable. Worldwide, I estimate that there are only just over 1,000 incunables in trade hands as of this moment, and that less than half that number annually appears at auction. A hundred of them in private hands, regardless of importance or rarity, count as a fair collection these days. Easily the largest, as far as I know, is at the same time one of the two finest, but has recently been semi-institutionalized, namely Dr. Schaefer's collection at Schweinfurt, Germany. The only private collection that can be called more important is American, and in its third generation, William Scheide's at Princeton. Both are still growing, employ full-time librarians, and provide generous access to scholars and bibliophiles. In Holland, to return where we started, J.R. Rittman, who employs several librarians, is rapidly building a major library of hermetic philosophy, but his excuses for collecting incunabula are often most unhermetic. His interest is such that in the Greuer, John of Portugal, and Heber tradition, he sometimes cannot resist buying duplicates. A selection of his achievement is on exhibition at the Greuer Club through the summer. Such passion is rarely attained by those who have charge of our public and academic libraries, unless they be selling. In fact, they are now a major source of early books on the market. Whatever the consequences to these institutions, it has prolonged the life of transatlantic trade in 15th century printing. Thank you very much. Felix Arnes delivered that talk at the Rare Books and Manuscripts section conference at Cambridge last year, and you can see why I thought it, too, should cross the Atlantic. I want to do something tonight I never do, and that's to acknowledge the presence in the audience of Marion Schild, who is the instructor of dozens of catalogers and would-be catalogers in the Columbia Rare Book program, who was herself as principal cataloger at the Library of Congress, uh, someone who had much to do with the catalog of the Rosenwald incunables and other books, and who has been our great friend for a long time. It's a pleasure to see her here tonight. I hope you will all join us for a glass of wine in the hallway and in room 523.